Three women, Maggie, Lena, and Sloane, suffered as a result of men's actions and societal scripting. This book tells the story of desire like it is, it also reflects the authentic messiness of real life in a way that reveals how life is just a series of connected events. Tadio transgresses the line between fiction and real life, she blurs the line by recanting a true life story like a novel. Three Women is about three traumatized and damaged women who find themselves suffering the consequences of other people's men's actions. Lena is a housewife who never really dealt with being gang-raped as a teenager and finds herself stuck with an inattentive, neglectful husband. Maggie was groomed and sexually abused by her high school teacher, he was brought to trial but she lost the case against him. Sloane is wealthy and self-assured but controlled by her husband, who likes watching her have sex with other men. If you pick up this book expecting a Fifty Shades of Grey kind of erotica, you'll be disappointed in fact, the actual sex is so secondary to the emotional action that the threesome scene is told in reporting tone. The women aren't necessarily likable, and their actions are not always admirable, but this point is, we're not. And while the specifics may not resonate, the primal need for love and the desire to be desired is universally recognizable. Maggie Wilkins was groomed into a traumatizing relationship by her high school teacher. Maggie Wilkins, who lived in Fargo, North Dakota as a high schooler fell in love with and had illicit sexual relations with her teacher in 2009, which went to trial. The relationship which started when she was 16 lasted for approximately one year. At the time, Mr. Aaron Nodal, her 29-year-old high school English teacher, was married with two young children. The month Maggie heard of Mr. Nodal, he had divulged to the class that he had testicular cancer, and he had also just resumed from his paternity leave for his second child. Maggie confided in a letter to Nodal her big secret, she had recently lost her virginity to a military man, who was 15 years older while vacationing in Hawaii, and she found it exciting. In her high school sophomore year, after her sister, Melia's marriage to Dane, Maggie traveled to Hawaii, where she lost her virginity to Dane's older military friend, Mateo, a divorcee. Maggie met Mateo at a party that she and Dane attended while her sister stayed home, they connected, went on several dates, and during the vacation in Hawaii, he made love to her. She was content in the relationship until a friend of her sister saw them while they were stealing kisses by the ocean and told Melia. This led to a massive blowout in tension in the family, and the tension remained until she left the island for home, North Dakota. On getting back to school following the trip, Maggie confided in her friend Heather about Mateo. Heather spread the story, leading to rumors, gossip and racial abuse being rained on her because of the fact that Mateo was Hispanic. The torrents of gossip, rumors and racial abuse turned what Maggie thought to be a beautiful thing into a traumatizing event. Maggie ended up depressed and lonely, with no one to talk to about her feelings and the thoughts going around in her head. In need of a savior, Maggie decided to share her burden with someone who would empathize and not judge her. Mr. Nodal seemed approachable, prior to this time, he had shown interest in Maggie, as a concerned adult. So, Maggie penned her version of the event, with Matteo, in a letter to Mr. Aaron Nodal. Nodal suggested that the two speak after class. And so it begins. At first, Nodal played the role of a concerned adult. He asked Maggie why her parents chose not to press charges against Matteo. Then she confided in him about her parents' drinking problem. They soon get closer, she'd linger after class to talk to him, or he would ask her a question when she was on her way out of the door. 
A few months passed, Mr. Nodal decided to take the relationship up a notch, and he began texting her in her senior year while she was on vacation in Colorado, and they spoke all through the holiday. The texts soon became sexual. Sometimes, he'd felt guilty and wary and tell her, they shouldn't be doing this. Maggie alluded to being aware there was a boundary in their illicit affair she didn't want to be the one to cross first. So, whenever Mr. Nodal pulled back like that, she always said okay. He was an authority figure, she was the kid. He was older and smarter and if he said they shouldn't be talking, even though he is the one prompting all their conversation, then they probably shouldn't be talking. However, it made a part of her feel like she was being reprimanded, feel she had done something wrong, even though she was mostly confused. All she'd done was answer his questions. Several months later, their texting and calling intensified, and with each call and text, their relationship deepened. Maggie began to feel the strains of carrying on with the secret relationship. She started to feel suffocated and alienated from her friends. Her feelings for Mr. Nodal seemed to have diminished until he sent her a message saying, I think I'm beginning to fall in love with you. His declaration of love marked the beginning of their physical relationship. Although they do not have penetrative sex, he was waiting for her to turn 18. They managed to set up different rendezvous where he performs various sexual acts, ranging from kisses to oral sex on her. Maggie had once given her copy of the book Twilight to Mr. Nodal, comparing their relationship to the forbidden romance between the vampire and his human lover. He returned the copy bristling with comments and post-it notes, indicating how much he agreed. Imagine a child who has idealized a fairy tale love story, reading notes from a teacher, who is saying, Yes, yes, I am your vampire lover and you are my forbidden fruit, the author writes. We are your favorite love story. For the rest of your life, nothing will taste like this. Can you imagine? On his birthday, Maggie, in her enthusiasm, sent him a message wishing him a happy birthday. Aaron was in the shower when the text came in, and his wife discovered the text. This led her to the evidence that they had been texting for several months. His wife's discovery led to Nodal ending their relationship abruptly. He curtly cut Maggie off, and with nobody to talk to, Maggie slipped back into a deep depression. She started having suicidal ideation, sleeping all the time, where each sleep wasn't restful but punctuated with panic attacks in between. She said this of sleep, sleep is not sweet but dumb. It is a gap in time, a gap in pain. She went through her senior year and graduated high school still feeling like that. Maggie reported her high school teacher to the authorities but didn't get justice. Three years after Nodal called off the relationship, Maggie was 20, and she felt the affair ruined her life. She found it hard to stay in college, having dropped out of several universities. Her family knew that she was depressed, but they didn't know the reason. Vaguely, she thought it was a blessing, because if they knew it was over a boy, they'd tell her to get over it, that grieving over a guy shouldn't last four years. If they knew it was her older married high school teacher, they'd throw a fit, especially after what happened in Hawaii with Mateo. You can fuck up like that only once. Twice, you get branded. Maggie said. She felt worthless, drank too much to cope with the torrents of pain she was experiencing. She had flashbacks and depersonalized while having sex with random dudes. She started seeing a therapist, Dr. Stone, who placed her on a lot of medications. Through all this, she confided in her best friend, Tammy. Maggie told Tammy everything that she could about the affair, which put Maggie in an even worse depression. To make Maggie feel better, Tammy took her to a pet adoption center where she adopted a cat. She named the cat Raja, which means hope in Arabic. 
The North Dakota Teacher of the Year award that was conferred on Mr. Nodal triggered yet another depressive episode for Maggie. The feeling of being dirty doesn't stop. During that period, she changed her underwear more times than she could count, but yet the sense of being defiled never seemed to disappear. Eventually, she decided to report the case and press charges. Six months after the news broke, her father committed suicide, he was unable to bear the stigma and shame. This also became public knowledge and it made matters worse for Maggie. During the trial, the lawyer asked the questions that were supposed to loosen her up, but they were used to build a discovery deposition against her. Hoy, Aaron Knodel's lawyer, began to question her about her past sexual encounters to paint her as a whore. It was a classic case of victim blaming, trying to establish her primarily as a flirt who wanted it. For the trial, a jury comprising of four men and eight women were chosen by John Byers, the assistant attorney general. During questioning, the prosecution did not dismiss one woman who asserted that a young lady of 17 years of age should have known better. This woman becomes a juror in the case. During the defense's opening statement, the defense lawyer, Hoy, stood before the jury and told them that it is highly, highly, highly unlikely for a man as decorated and loved and respected as Aaron Nodal to do the things the victim claims he had done. He said decorated men do not perform oral sex on young women to whom they are attracted, decorated men also do not tell young women that they love their small hands. To confirm his assertion, he says there is no rape kit, no snail's trail of semen on a dress. Maggie earns the hatred of her neighbors for telling the story, and many of her high school teachers and classmates testified against her. In court, the jury chose not to believe Maggie. Aaron Nodal prevailed, not only receiving a not guilty verdict, but also keeping his job. The integrity of the charismatic male is often preserved, the hurting woman in his wake is taken as a given. Tadio is sure of the injustice. There are men, and there are women, she writes. And one still rules the other in the pockets of the country that are not televised. Maggie blames herself all through the book even though it was clear Nodal took advantage of her. Lena left a loveless marriage to start an affair with her high school sweetheart. Lena is a pseudonym for the second of the three women from the title, a full-time housewife and mother of two. The one thing Lena desired the most in her life was to be desired by someone. As a teenager, Lena had a crush on Aiden, who was her best friend Jennifer's boyfriend's friend. Aiden was a popular, quiet, and attractive jock, seemingly out of her league. Lena, nevertheless, developed a strategy to get his attention and part of the plan was to learn everything possible about Aiden, practical obsession, she calls it. Her best friend, Jennifer, sets up a double date with her boyfriend and Aiden. Lena and Aiden connect, and soon enough, they start dating, and they frequently meet in their secret place, a spot by the bank of a river in the woods. A few months pass and Aiden becomes distant, but Lena's convinced she is in love with him and he is with her. One day, Lena's older sister told her that a friend had a crush on her, the friend lured her into his house under the guise of a party invitation. Seeing an opportunity to eliminate her boredom, Lena went to his house where she was drugged and raped by three guys. Lena recalls being chill about it because she didn't want to give them a reason to hate her. The next day and subsequent days that followed, the rapists give a different account of what happened the night before, and Lena's schoolmates slut-shamed her. Aiden got wind of the rumor and broke up with her. Fast forward a few years, and Lena is married to Ed, someone who, after ten years of marriage, doesn't like to kiss her anymore, because the sensation of someone else's tongue in his mouth offends him. Lena loves her children but almost nothing else about her life 
In towns like Lina's, people think others are good if they are not cheating or leaving home, so, they aren't concerned. Meanwhile, Lina is having a mental breakdown because nobody cares. Nobody is dead yet, so nobody cares. She feels suffocated and trapped. She has these children she has got to keep alive, day in, day out, and she would die if anything happened to them. But at the same time, they felt like baggage. She feels alone in caring for them, because Ed, her husband, doesn't chip in. She feels alone in caring for herself. Lena wishes she could stop caring for everything. She wishes she could burn the house down. She hopes her husband would touch her and make her feel like a living thing. Ed doesn't like kissing her and intimacy was lacking in their relationship. Lena joined a gym and lost some weight. Being slim made her feel very sexy and feeling sexy made her crave sex in a way she never did before. She and her husband stopped having sex a long time ago, and the therapist they saw together worsened the situation. Their couple's therapist saw nothing wrong with her husband not wanting to kiss her. Some people don't like the feeling of someone else's tongue in their mouth, the therapist told a shocked Lena. Lena found a way to replace the love affection that was lacking in her marriage. One day, Lena reconnected with her high school sweetheart, Aiden. They had broken up pretty badly in high school, and it was due to the rumor that she had slept with three guys in one night. She would have explained herself better to Aiden, but she did not understand or know or remember what it was that happened that night. She hadn't realized that she was raped until years later when she understood that she hadn't consented and she was drugged. I didn't even understand it. And something I didn't understand, barely remembered, had the power to change my whole damn life, Lena says of the trauma. Years of emotional and physical neglect, during which time she's also developed a panoply of aches and pains, have primed Lena for the glory of their reunion. Their affair was passionate, the attraction magnetic. Aiden was still hot as far as Lena was concerned, yet quiet, withholding. Entirely physical, the affair went on and on, mostly in their cars and in hotel rooms. Even though Lena was very much aware that Aiden wasn't as attached to this as she is, she didn't mind. Lena found in this affair something more, something akin to sexual liberation. And she knows how much that has changed her. Not having a partner, for Lena, was like slowly, quietly dying, writes Tadio. Maybe Aiden, would never leave his wife. Maybe none of how she'd gilded him were accurate. But Aiden made her veins hot. He made her feel like a girl and not a part of the house. She could no longer see the end of her life clearly, she could no longer picture the grayness of the earth she would be buried under and the road the automobile would take to get her there. And that was more living than she'd done in her whole life. After years in a sexless marriage, Lena and Ed officially separate and Lena pursues Aiden, her high school sweetheart, now married with children of his own. Lena knows that, for her, it means sexual liberation, and for Aiden, it's a noncommittal distraction. She laments how hard she tries for him. Despite this imbalance, the physical pleasure she finds in their encounters is heartening. One senses that having found sexual connection, Lena will not settle for a lesser affection again. Their meetings become an excruciating waiting game, one Lena worries she might be losing. Sloane sleeps with other people while her husband watches. Sloane is the pseudonym Tadio uses instead of the name of a wealthy restaurant owner in her mid-forties, skinny and attractive with very long, gorgeous brown hair. She is married to a man named Richard, who is not as handsome as she is beautiful. Together, Sloane and Richard have three kids, two girls from their marriage and a child from Richard's first relationship. They live in Newport, on Rhode Island's Narragansett Bay, and both own a restaurant, a few blocks from the harbor where the boats dock. 
She met Richard while on a date with her father's boss's son. While on the date, she expressed an interest in working at the restaurant, and the next week she received an offer. Richard was the chef of the restaurant. After months of working at the restaurant and still seeing most of her exes, they start dating and become exclusive immediately. They bought a restaurant together with Richard at the back in the kitchen and Sloan managing the front end. On her 27th birthday, the restaurant that they jointly bought had been open for two years, and Sloan and her husband Richard experienced their first threesome as a couple. At first, Sloan was not comfortable watching her husband fuck another woman. She overcame her fears the same night, but for Richard, they became a character trait. Soon after, he started to spur, even pressuring, his wife into relationships with other men. Sometimes, when he wasn't there, she describes to him these affairs via text messages. More often, however, he watched them physically. Sloan had a difficult adolescence, she suffered from eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia. She always felt the need to lose weight due to her body image, which was actually a result of her mom's perception of her. Sloane, now in her 40s, hadn't vomited in years, and although she still nurses a fear of being overweight and overfed, has found healthier ways to stay trim. After years of experimenting with other people, the couple soon develops a routine with Wes, an assistant chef in their restaurant. Years into this arrangement, problems arise when Sloane realizes that their favorite extramarital partner had not been as open with his wife about what he was doing. When the wife found out, the blame fell on Sloane. You're a woman, she confronted Sloane. And you let this happen, don't you know you're supposed to have the power? Sloane could not really say anything to defend herself. What she really wanted was for Richard to explain to Jenny that he'd pushed her to do it, which was the truth, Tadio informs us. She wanted him to say, look, this isn't Sloane going after Wes, we were confused about your relationship. This is something we both did as a couple. It wasn't Sloane. She's not what you think. Richard didn't do that, but that didn't take away much of Sloane's love for him. Strangely enough, as far as Sloane is concerned, there is nothing more important than the fact that she wants her husband above all others, and he wants her above all else. Conclusion Three Women expands on the hypocrisy of monogamy. Among the three women it portrays, the one who has something that is the closest to a happy marriage is Sloane, a middle-aged swinger who has threesomes with people chosen by her husband. It confirms also, the hypocrisies of the heterosexual marriage, the psychological scars that sexual coercion and violence assault can leave on a person, and the persistence of gender inequality. Tadio reveals how, when a man is popular and well-liked, married with children and good at his job, an accusation by a woman against him is perceived as slander, and all of the mistrust is directed at the accuser. Refrain from making rash and harsh judgments about others, especially if you don't know their backstory. Do your part to help sexual assault survivors, learn more about gender inequality and embrace feminism. Know that you can always find the strength to tell your story, no matter how dire the situation is. The truth has no time limit.